Good morning, and welcome to episode 647 of Effectively Wild, the daily podcast Great from to be here. Baseball it's Wild Practice. Man, and I'm, I'm, glad to, I'm glad to be back with you, Ben. Thank you. Presented by the Play Index at BaseballReference.com. Uh, now we can, can screw around again with our intros. We can yeah. relax. We are not yeah. doing team preview podcasts anymore. We can, we can banter however we like. I don't even remember how to banter. I was just trying to think of things to banter about. I don't remember how it works. Got to get back into the swing of banter every day. You know what I was uh, remembering recently? This didn't make the, the bracket, and it probably shouldn't have. It's fairly weak. But there was a time where this this counted as a recurring thing. The uh, you asking for people to rate and review us on iTunes. Uh-huh. And, and as I recall, me uh, disapproving of the hard of the hard sell and finding it a little too attention grabby. Uh-huh. I don't, I don't remember you objecting to it. You no, objected maybe to not. It? No. I, I know I, you object to it in spirit. Yeah. Maybe I didn't. I'm not sure. You were just thinking it every time. Yeah. It felt like you were saying it. Okay. Well, what else is there to, to banter <laughs> about? Is there anything? Matt Albers made the White Sox. Yeah, that's not a good team for him uh, to, get, to yeah. get a save. I guess, no, I guess not. Although, what, David Robertson had some forearm issues, right? So, not that I'm rooting for David Robertson to get hurt. He's one of my favorite pitchers, but that would that would clear the path. Well, except that they had they had a closer last year who was also still there. True. So, he, he would be next. And then they have another guy who they signed to a multi-year deal as a reliever this year. So, then, presumably, he would be next. Uh, and... He is currently uh, listed ninth on the bullpen depth chart that I'm looking at. Uh-huh. Uh huh. Yeah, yeah. Well, when you make the team on team. March 30th <laughs> or 31st, you're probably not first in line for saves. So I was, I was just <laughs> I was just reading the uh, the ESPN the magazine thing where they polled all the players and or they polled 117 players and the most common answer for what would you do if you were commissioner for the day is shorten the season. 19% of them said shorten the season. Do you think that they realized that they would probably have to take a pay cut commensurate uh, with the shortening of the season? I so, don't know that. Well, first of all, I don't know that I believe that. You don't? I, uh-huh. I don't. I don't know. I mean, it's like that old... I, I don't think this applies perfectly, but you know how when... That old thing about how they lie about how much revenue a new stadium is going to bring or the World Cup is going to bring to a community, and they go, oh, well, it's going to bring in $2 billion because they've counted all $2 billion that are going to be spent at or on that stadium. But, of course, uh, economists will just point out that that money is just being taken from other entertainment venues, that people have entertainment budgets, and that it's just they might spend $30 on on a soccer ticket or a baseball ticket, but then they won't spend the same $30 on a movie ticket the same night or a... Yeah. a new pornographer's concert down at the Bellia. And so you end up basically having no extra revenue. I mean, people more or less have the money they're going to spend, and they're going to spend it. And uh, and I, this is a half a literal comparison and half an analogy. But, I mean, most parks don't sell out most games, correct? Like, you have a few that do. Like, the Cubs are more or less maxed out. And if you added 10 more games, they would send uh, sell you know 300,000 more tickets. And the Red Sox the same, and the Giants the same. Although there might be some 
demand issue where they might be able to charge less for those. I don't know. But let's just assume that those those three parks and maybe one or two others would get more money. But most parks, I feel like people go, hey, you want to see a game this year? And then they look at their calendars and then they look at the schedule and they go, how about this game? Mm-hmm. And they go to that game. And if that game didn't exist, it's not like they would like notice the gaping vacuum in, in the universe and be like, well, I guess we can't watch a baseball game. They would just pick the game that is happening. Uh-huh. And so I, I sort of feel like uh, you could cut. I bet if you like, for instance, I bet if you cut 30 percent of games, this is a number I'm going to pick completely out of nowhere. But if you cut 30% of games, I would guess that baseball attendance would go down by 8%. Huh. Okay. But there's also TV. There's the TV revenue, except that, yeah, I mean, that's like, that is definitely money for sure. Mm-hmm. Uh, but also, do, do people really watch these games? <laughs> do people watch baseball games? I mean, like. <laughs> A lot of these games, really, a lot of these games are on at prime time. They're, they're, I don't know. It just feels like it's, I, I don't quite know how to square this with the fact that people are willing to pay billions and billions and billions of dollars to broadcast them. Just but, because you don't have cable and listen to baseball on the radio doesn't yeah. mean everyone does. Yeah, I don't, I don't know how it would affect TV contracts. Uh, it might, it might affect, I mean, it would affect TV contracts. Uh, so they would lose money. I'm not saying that if you cut 30% of the games, uh, you wouldn't lose any revenue. I just don't think you would lose anywhere near 30% of revenue. Um, and you'd have the same number of postseason games. And, um, so, and, and there would be some more scarcity to the games. Maybe people would, uh, maybe people would watch. I mean, maybe, maybe not everybody is a fan who watches every game, but maybe People have sort of a, a, a an amount of attention that they're capable of giving to a baseball season, and it varies from person to person. And for some people, that's six games. Like that's how I would be with football, is I have the attention for six games a year. And if if you cut the football season down to like thirteen games spread across thirty cities, like there was a total of thirteen games, like among all the teams, I would still watch the exact same number of games. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, and some people it might be 50 and some people it might be 100 and of course for some of us it's just every day it's part of your your schedule and your routine and if they showed 300 games you'd watch 300 but i'm saying that uh that at this point like once you get past i don't know maybe game 60 in a season every game you add brings less than a full game's worth of revenue to you and uh-huh. it's a it's a declining return the higher you get and that 162 is extremely, extremely high. That is an extreme number of games. That is 500 hours that you uh, have committed to baseball. Um, and I'm not sure that people need that necessarily. <laughs> uh, no, yeah, I wouldn't. I wouldn't object to fewer games necessarily. The but... other thing, and and I will I'll say another thing. This was players who said that they would, right? And yes. Mm-hmm. So I actually think that they would take the pay cut for a shorter season because they're clearly they're clearly rich, right? I mean, they they have plenty of money to be rich forever. Most of these guys, not everybody, of course, but they have plenty of money to be rich forever. Mm-hmm. A lot of them, and uh, so it goes to that other old thing that economists talk about, where people are less concerned with the amount of money they have and more concerned with how much money they have relative to their neighbor. Uh, like, I think that the reason you see uh, Max Scherzer, for instance, or 
you know, BJ Upton, I don't know why I picked those two, but free agents who are like going to the highest bidder and really want to get paid is because they are part of a population of mm-hmm. players that they compare themselves against. The, the salary they get is a prestige thing. Uh, they want to get more than other people. They want to know that they're valued because of the amount they get. But it, if we lived in a world where baseball simply wasn't as popular and therefore every contract was 20% less, again, it's not like they would notice or know that this was the case. They would still be happy. They would still play baseball. Everybody, every kid in America would still be incentivized to try to become a baseball player. Certainly every kid in, in poorer countries would be as well. I don't think it would really change anything. Um, and, uh, and, and yeah, frankly, like, I don't think, I think if you went in and told them, oh, you're going to get a 20% pay cut, they would respond and go, ah, I'm not, that's horrible. That's not fair. But I don't think it would affect their happiness levels at all. Uh-huh. Yeah. I'm thinking of Rob Nyer mentioned on his podcast that he did a panel a while ago where this came up and Dan Wilson, the, the old Mariners catcher was on this panel and he was talking about how he would want fewer games in the season and Nyer pointed out that that might mean less revenue and less and a lower salary for Wilson and suddenly he backtracked on that but I don't know whether everyone feels that way mm-hmm. or you're right even if they don't like the idea of it they might be okay with the reality of it the other interesting thing here was that almost as many people almost as many players thought that Alex Gordon should have tried to go home as not 41% to 46%. And maybe the more interesting part is that 13% hadn't seen the play. <laughs> what? <laughs> I didn't watch was 13% of the responses, which is kind of crazy. I uh, Even if you didn't watch Game 7. So, send me this poll, Ben. Send okay. me this. Even thing. if you didn't watch Game <laughs> 7 not to have seen <laughs> that play somehow at some point in the last several months is pretty incredible because it's it's been written about a billion times and it is interesting that 41 percent of players said yes because it feels feels like you know from looking at it and reading all the various analyses that it seems like it would have been fun if he had gone and and you can see why a fan would argue that he could have gone or should have gone but that i i would have expected players to be more down on his chances of actually scoring just personal uh, experience yeah do you think this is just uh um reflective of the attitude that you need to have or that that is uh trained into players that you sh- it's sort of better to fail by action than to fail by inaction mm. i mean i wonder if you could make the case that the third base coach uh, I think that's the opposite of the third base coach mentality, right? Well, no, the, yeah. the, it is. That's what I'm saying. The yeah. third base coach is essentially a hired chaperone that goes with you on a school trip. He is baseball players, um, you know, uh, two-step authentication uh, process to go home. Like, we can't trust players. They would just run until they are tagged. Uh-huh. I wonder if, I mean, I'm not saying that's true, but I wonder if that is true. I wonder if that's the mentality that uh, that you should basically always be going for it. Uh, and that a, a large part of what coaching is, uh, is uh, basically, like, it, on the one hand, you are training these guys to be aggressive and always want to go for it. And then you need to have some authority structure uh, to control them. Almost like, I'm thinking of, I'm like, I'm basically now thinking of Full Metal Jacket, except in, in baseball clothes. 
uh, where you're kind of like training them to kill. Uh-huh. Uh, and then and then you have to have uh, this elaborate uh, authority structure above them uh, in order to then restrain them from killing uh, except when you want them to kill. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, it seems like every time someone does an analysis of third base coaches or sending players or how often guys try to score on sack flies or that sort of thing, it turns out that they should send people more often. More often, yeah. Russell Carlton did something on that. Pete Palmer did something on that recently. Yeah. Yeah. All right. I guess we bantered, huh? This is how we used to banter. This was was how it worked. 90% of players gave Bud Selig an A or a B, and 0% gave him an F, which is interesting. Yeah. I wonder if you'd ask them in 1995. Well, actually, I don't wonder. I'll just tell you what the I think, I think we can guess. Yeah, it would have been a complete flip. Mm-hmm. Well, most of these players never knew a different commissioner and made lots of money under Bud Selig. Okay, so questions from other people. All right, Sean says uh, I brought this up in the Facebook group, but thought it might be worth an email. I am fascinated by the debate slash non-debate slash imaginary debate of sabermetrics versus scouting. Are we to the point at which sabermetrics slash analysis slash stats can and should be viewed in the same light as scouting? For the most part, we take it for granted that all teams are very good at scouting, and if there are differences, they are probably minor and indistinguishable, and or it's very difficult to figure out which teams are the best and worst. With sabermetrics, we seem to want to peg and rank teams as sabermetric or anti-sabermetric and figure out to what degree teams are or aren't sabermetrically inclined. It seems to me we are approaching the point where all teams are very good at sabermetrics, and if there are differences, they are probably minor and indistinguishable and and or it's very difficult to figure out which teams are the best and worst. I know you've touched on it before that the whole ranking of teams by how sabermetric they are is more about PR and public perception of teams and how vocal certain teams are about being sabermetrics. But is it finally time to view all this the same way we view scouting? If a team talked about how scouting-friendly they were and that they implement scouting into all their decision-making, such comments would be ignored and would be pretty absurd since scouting is such a part of the fabric of the game. Uh, sorry, I was on mute, but oh. what I was saying on mute was literally, I'd like to hear your answer. So, <laughs> Oh, well, uh, yeah, I think we're probably getting to that point. I, it's it's not true that we never hear about teams scouting. Sometimes we hear about, you know, like when the, when the Blue Jays hired a bunch of scouts and suddenly the Blue Jays had more scouts than anyone. We, we heard about that. That was not that they were using scouting, but that they were just investing in it more than other teams seemed to be or... We'll hear about advanced scouting, which I don't know whether that's really sabermetrics or scouting. It's kind of it's kind of both. But when, when, teams... the, when the yeah when the Dodgers invested like all that money in international scouts, we uh-huh. heard about that. Yeah. So you yeah so you do hear about that or or yeah if a team gives up its advanced scouts and does it all from video or that sort of thing, you you hear about that if someone deviates from the norm. You don't hear that they use scouting. You you never hear someone in a front office say yes we we scout we incorporate scouting information into our evaluations but i mean scouting has a you know century plus long history so and 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 it was the original way to evaluate players so naturally it's the default and 
stats and analysis, you know, sabermetric analysis is the is the latecomer, relatively, even though it's not particularly new at this point. So I would guess that that the longer we go, the less often we'll hear it, and the less likely you'll be to see a ranking of teams by, you know, sabermetric investment or number of analysts or whatever whatever criterion you use to to judge them. I would guess that you would hear about that less. I I don't know. There may still be more variation in how teams use stats than than there is in how teams use scouting. I would think that there probably still is more variation in that, but the variations will will fade out eventually, and everyone will use it to more or less the same degree. I would think just based on what your but what your baseball operations budget is and how much you can afford. I mean, it's it's more interesting if you're a writer to write about what a team is doing from the uh, saber metric side, the the tech side, just because that's always changing. Um, mm-hmm. That like it is there's it's basically one one approach is a very conservative approach in that it is based on tradition, uh, it is based on accumulated wisdom. This is the scouting approach. Uh, it is uh, it is a a skill that has uh, theoretically been kind of perfected over a hundred years of of baseball, and therefore it isn't. Go- it's much more about doing it well rather than doing it differently. I think usually, and uh, I mean that's why it's sort of seen as traditional and conservative because it is sort of a a traditional uh, a thing. And uh, the other side, though, the sabermetric side, is defined specifically as being modern and uh, new and ever-changing and ever-learning and ever-adapting and finding these like little new places that you can go one day ahead of everybody else. And so if you're writing about baseball and you're looking for examples of things changing or things being different, it's just natural that you're going to gravitate toward the toward the latter, right? Mm-hmm. You're, you're more likely to find, like if you go to, like take the Pirates, for instance. The Pirates have an extremely good international scouting uh, tradition, uh-huh. uh, both in terms of investment and, and it also the people on the ground. Like, uh, as, as I understand it, like their Latin American uh, scouting director or whatever that title is called is like legendary and is maybe one of them, one of, might be the giant in that, in that particular field, but he's there every year. He's been there every year. He's going to be there every year. And if you look at their scouting internationally this year, relative uh, compared to last year and the year before and the year before and the year before and the year before and the year before, it's basically the same story. It's a good story. It's a story of competence, uh, and it's a story of you know where uh, it's a big part of their success. But it's basically the same story every year. Whereas if you look at like what the Pirates are doing uh, with their spreadsheets, it's going to be different every year. Uh, there's going to be changes every year, and so there's a publication bias, I guess, to focusing more on the the stat head side of things for that reason, or the technology side more than anything, because that's really what we're talking about. It's, it's mostly technology at this point. Mm-hmm. When you when you talk about what a team is doing, uh, it's usually much less about who they've hired or even what their philosophy is, and more about trying to figure out what technology and or uh, new science they're leaning on right yeah which team bought the supercomputer yeah yeah exactly Mm -hmm. okay eric in san francisco 
Hi, Ben and Sam. I need some advice on how to break up with a team. I'm a lifelong Mets fan, and I just don't want to support or care about them anymore. Collapses in 2007 and 2008, eight straight seasons out of the playoffs, incredibly disappointing stars, Alomar, Vaughn, Bay, and consistent underperformance were not enough to scare me away, but I'm finally fed up with ownership. The Madoff scandal was embarrassing, but the caster gene discrimination lawsuit is sickening. I don't want to root for a team owned by the Wilpons anymore. So how do I do it? It seems like you both have managed to give up your early life rooting interests. Is there anything you can suggest other than work in baseball full time? My disgust at ownership hasn't stopped me from turning a rueful eye towards spring training Matt Harvey updates, and I'm irrationally excited about David Wright's three spring home, three spring home runs. How do I quit this team? Well, it helps to have, in my experience, it helps to have them win a World Series um, or a couple uh, <laughs> because it just lowers the stakes. As I've talked about, it's much, it's much harder to, to, to really care about a team, uh, I think, requires uh, you to have extreme moments of disappointment uh, more than it requires you to have extreme moments of joy. Like, it's, it's the... Uh, it's the heartbreak that keeps you caring because that's what you're trying to avoid. You're trying to avoid the pain. And I feel like um, that old saying about how, I don't know if this is an old saying, when I ran cross country, uh, I remember somebody saying that uh, the uphill is always much harder than the downhill is easy. And base- fandom is the opposite. The The joy of winning is always much less than the pain of, of losing. Um, and when you quit caring that much about losing because you've already won, then, um, I don't know, it, it's just hard to stay as focused in my opinion. Mm-hmm. Is that, do you, do you think that is, I don't, I remember you didn't quite feel that way because you were a Yankees fan during the whole four <laughs> and five years run and it never got boring to you, but yeah. it did to me. Yeah. I, I don't, I don't know if that would, I mean, that would suggest that, that all Giants fans and Red Sox fans right now are. They they care less than they used to, which, right? Which, <coughs> I, uh, it would suggest that on the whole, some of them do. Uh-huh. Uh I if there are three million fans, uh, I would guess that a lot of them uh, don't have the same relationship that uh, I have or that that Eric uh, does with a team. So maybe this is only for a specific type of fan that this matters. Mm-hmm. Uh, certainly, if you're uh, like I, if if you're the casual fan, again the guy who watches six games a year, like I am with football, it's the exact opposite. Um, I'm far, far, far more likely to watch a 49ers game the year after they win a Super Bowl if they did win a Super Bowl than the year after they win four games. Um, so it doesn't really work in that sense. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I don't know. Maybe maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I mean maybe I have a very a maybe I'm unusual and b maybe i'm conflating that effect with the working in baseball uh having it be your job effect uh-huh. that also does it anyway i don't know that that answers the question this is way too specific for eric <laughs> because neither of those is an option <laughs> right you well yeah maybe the mets I, will make it so but he can't he can't make that happen so i wrote uh when i was covering the angels i wrote about a guy who um was a Blue Jays fan, and decided that the Blue Jays were were terrible. He just could not deal with the Blue Jays anymore. And he had been a diehard fan, and he just couldn't take it. So he was going to find a new team, and he wanted help. And so I uh, interviewed him, 
and he was he was going to think it over and get input and fan bases could could try to sway him and in the end as i recall he went back to the blue jays and uh he was pretty devoted to the idea of switching teams but ultimately it didn't work i don't think you i don't think you really can do it mm-hmm. um uh Unless you, if if you, so, well, he already lives in San Francisco is the thing. I was going to say if he so, moves and could just watch a different team, but he lives in can, San Francisco, so just well, go watch the Giants. Or, I mean, he could certainly be a fan of a new team. It's just that, like, let's say you care about your childhood team. On a scale of 1 to 10, you care a 10 when you're, you know, a child. And then as you're an adult, you still maintain that really strong bond. It's like you're maybe you're in, maybe you're busy, but still you're like an 8 or a 9. I think that you could turn off the eight, the, the eight or the nine. You could probably abandon that team. It would be easy. You just quit watching them. After a year, I think you'd quit caring, and you'd just be a classic bandwagon fan. You might show up when you want to, but I, I don't think you would miss them. However, you'll never replicate the eight or the nine again because uh, it is a it is a developmental thing, these relationships we have. Uh, and just, like You'll never love an adult the way that you love your parents because they were there when you were an infant, and they... Uh, took care of you and they did so much that uh, was a developmental process. Uh, so you can pick a new team and just start following them and you'll care, you'll get up to like a three or a four and, and that's maybe you do, that's all you have time in your life for anyway. So maybe that works. Uh, but I don't think you'll ever, you'll ever be able to match your original team. Mm-hmm. Oh, you know what you could do is have a kid and have the <laughs> kid cheer for the other team. I actually think that you could get almost back up to an eight or a nine. If you maybe even maybe you could maybe you could uh, align your passion with your child's exactly and so if your child reached ten again uh, in his childhood you might be able to for those few years have have it be a ten and you might reclaim your ten uh, so that's probably the best advice I have is have a child uh, and have your child cheer for the local team um, and uh, and care with him or her. <laughs> Okay, so that that is a more doable remedy than having the Mets win the World Series. Eric can go have a child. He can't do it by himself necessarily. He needs needs someone else to be involved. And do we really want Mets fans to be procreating anyway? <laughs> uh, do you think it's is it uh, if you think that that the ownership of a team is bad that they are discriminating against people or they are being a bad uh i don't know holder of the public trust or whatever are you obliged to stop following that team because you following the team helps the ownership somehow or are you are you hurting yourself even more by depriving yourself of baseball it doesn't say he doesn't care about baseball anymore he just seems to feel bad about supporting the mets because he doesn't like their owners so is he morally obliged to stop supporting the mets or is he just hurting himself? Is he just piling more hurts on himself like the Wilpons already have? Um, I, I The hard part is that you don't want to give money to a monster. And so there's always, if you're voting with your, with your checkbook, uh, then by giving money, you are technically, you know, you're casting a vote. But I, I, don't, you, I don't think that there's any reason that you can't root for monsters uh, or teams that are run by bad people. To me, the... the the fan's role is to uh, is basically two things. One, you want the team to win, and you'll yell things that will help them win. The other is that your 
the you're keeping them honest. You criticize them. You're the guy who says the manager's an idiot, uh, the pitching coach sucks, uh, the ownership's too cheap, and uh, that player's uh, a choker. Mm-hmm. And uh, and it's okay to hate aspects of your team. That like so much of being a fan is being critical uh-huh. and is being unhappy with them and is feeling like they are not uh, as good of stewards as you deserve and as your community deserves. Uh, so. Uh, so I don't, I don't think that there's a, um, an, an imperative that you support everything they do or even think that they're good people. Uh, if they're, <clears throat> if they're winning by doing something that is wretchedly evil, mm-hmm. then you can turn your back and leave them. But if they are simply wretchedly evil people, <laughs> uh, who, who, because this world is not fair, uh, got a team instead of, uh, Instead of you know some good person getting teams, instead uh-huh. of school teacher, school teachers should get teams. How come school teachers never get teams, man? I I don't know. Well, maybe... How come firefighters never get teams? Your wife can help us with the stoppers. Uh, I think you're I think you're on perfectly fine moral ground. I don't I don't think a Mets fan needs to quit following or cheering or rooting or hoping for the Mets uh, because of this personally. Okay, so forget about the baby. You don't you don't have to have one if you don't want. You can keep watching the Mets. Yeah, or you could have a baby too. Yeah, but I know you wouldn't recommend that. No. Okay. Play index. Sure. Um, so I mean, this is going to be kind of a live play index. Um, we've talked before about how it's odd that the shift. Uh, everybody thinks the shift is is so effective and is killing offense in baseball and and. All these teams, like we see the numbers at the end of the year, how many runs they saved or how many hits they saved because of the shift, and it seems like it's doing a lot. And then you look at Babbitt, and it's identical from you know from previous years. It hasn't gone down, and we've wondered why that would be. And one of one of the hypotheses that that we or I or you, I can't remember, has offered is that um, that many of the things that ball players do in the current era should should lead to higher Babbitts, particularly because Babbitt. Uh, correlates with high strikeout rates uh, because you're swinging harder, hitting it harder, and um, sure, missing the ball a lot more, but uh, having an approach that should lead to hard contact. Um, And so this hypothesis is that BABIP would be even higher, but shifts are keeping the equilibrium. Um, And so I thought there's a simple enough way to to quasi-test this. There are various situations where shifts are extremely uncommon, uh, base out situations, that is, uh, where shifts are extremely uncommon. And so if this hypothesis had any merit, uh, in those situations uh, where the batters are constant, the pitchers are constant, everything is the same except there is no shift, uh, BABIP should be up. Mm -hmm. And in situations where shifts are very common, BABIP should be down or uh, steady or somewhere in between. And so... What I've done is I've gone to the batting split finder. I have grouped all teams together, all Major League Baseball teams together, uh, and I have sorted them by year, and I'm going to choose a split, a base split, either a bases occupied split or a base out spl- uh, state split. As you, we can choose with outs or without outs, uh, but with base runners where we think that shifts are least common, Hmm. And then we're going to see if indeed BABIP is higher in those states. That seems simple, right? I mean, this is obviously not 
rigorous if I were writing this, there might be seven more controls in place. Uh, but it seems kind of like uh, an easy way to, to do a quick and dirty test, right? Uh, sure, yeah. All right. Mm -hmm. So I, uh, we have two options for choosing our splits. Uh, one is that I wrote a piece about Ryan Howard two years ago and how uh, his uh, extremely good clutch slash RBI situation stats uh, in his career are not actually a fluke. That if you look at what he does uh, in situations with shifts, uh, he's very poor. And without shifts, he's very good. And that many of the things we consider RBI situations are no shifts. And uh, I broke down whether he gets shifted or not in every state, in every base runner state, see whether teams did a full shift, modified shift, or no shift on him. So we could use that as, an, as a proxy, or you, since you think so much about shifting in last year, particularly you thought so much about shifting uh, for all hitters and not just Ryan Howard, you might, I might just defer to you and say, pick a non-shifting base state. Hmm. Well, what showed up as the as the least common shift situations for Howard. I mean, that seems to, that should be fine, right? Because he's a guy who gets shifted as much as, as anyone. I'd be happy going with the empirical information over what I would speculate. So what I found with Howard is that with nobody on base, he gets a full shift. With a runner on first, he gets a partial shift with none or one out and a full shift with two outs. With a runner on second, he gets a full shift. With a runner on third, he gets a full shift. And in the other four, first and second, first and third, second and third, or bases loaded, he generally gets no shift, uh, except that with two outs and a runner on first and third, he gets a full shift. Okay. Uh, so, like, we could just look at uh, basically first and second, second and third, and bases loaded, because mm -hmm. those, were, those were no shift. Uh -huh. You want to just do those three? Yeah, I'm trying to think if there's uh, anything else that, has changed about bases loaded or that would make bases loaded a weird time. I guess it would it would be different from other times, maybe BABIP-wise, but not relative to itself, so should be fine to, to use that. All right. So, uh, okay, so I'll do first and second. Uh, I'm not going to worry about outs. I'm just going to do first and second uh, in all situations, and I'm sorting by year. All right. So the first thing is that uh, I have a BABIP for 2014, but what are we going to compare it with? How do we how do we compare? Are we going to compare with the like? Do we want to do uh, relative to the league overall that year? Do we want to do uh, relative to the previous years? Do we want to do relative to 1984 uh -huh. as a random year? What? How do you want to do it? Uh, I guess we should use previous years, right? Because we don't. Okay. Well, I mean. Depends on the question we want to answer. If we want to see whether the shift is actually having an impact on on those situations, which maybe would be a good check just to see that we are we're looking for shift heavy situations, then we could compare to the league to see if there's a difference between our shift situations and non shift situations. But that's a, a different question. If we just want to see whether if we just want to assume that that's the case, and these are are non-shift situations or shift situations, then we can just compare to previous years. Okay. So uh, let's see. Just to... to BABIP was lower in the, in the 70s. I mean, it was much lower in the 70s uh, and the 60s. And it, has, it kind of kept going up uh, until about 
well, basically until the offensive era began. So if you look at pre-1993, BABIPs were in the 280s, even the 270s, once dipped into the 260s. And so then from 94 on, it was it's been really pr- fairly reliably around 300 since then. Uh-huh. Uh, and it's 299 overall. So that's the overall bad. All right. Yeah. So now I'm going to do this split and all right. So the hypothesis is that it should be higher. Should be higher. Yeah. Cause this is the, yeah. the non shift situation. So it should be higher. Well, there's some, so there's a lot of fluctuation from year to year. Uh, some really up to 10 or 15 points at times. Hmm. But last year it was 294, which is more or less the median from 1993 to 1993 uh, to 2013. Uh-huh. Um, and it's about five points lower than the overall league Babbitt. It's exactly five points lower than the overall league, league Babbitt, which uh, is actually a smaller gap than it looks like it usually is i'm eyeballing things here but it's either comparable with or slightly smaller gap than the overall league babip so in this case babip is not unexpectedly high it is more or less what we would have expected in all the years before ships were freaking out mm-hmm. all right now i'm going to do uh i'm going to do second and third uh, so here we have, it's at 295, which is actually, again, lots of fluctuation because of things, but, uh, it's lower than it was in 2013, 2012, uh, way lower than in 2008, seven, six, uh, again, kind of the median for the era, maybe slightly lower, maybe slightly lower than the median, uh-huh. pretty close to the median. And uh, again, four points lower than BABIP overall, uh, and that's more or less right on the money. And now I'm going to do bases loaded. And again, it's I'm eyeballing this. It's conceivable that if I really tried to make an article out of this and I just didn't care about truth, I could find <laughs> enough here to uh, to make the case. However, it's definitely not jumping out at me. Mm-hmm. All right, so then bases loaded. 2014 was 299. Uh, years before that, 300, 288, 292, 300, 296, 297, 302, 310. Again, it's like essentially the median. This one looks like it's maybe like the 60th percentile mm-hmm. uh, or so. Uh, but, you know, basically the same. It's it, It's basically the same and relative to the league's BABIP overall, it also looks basically the same. So uh, that, uh, without digging in, I would not want to quite rule out the hypothesis, but it is not good for the hypothesis. Uh-huh. It is not good for the hypothesis at all. Hmm. All right. Well, so, I guess we how about that? can stop staying that then. Eh. <laughs> I mean, I need to say something. <laughs> yeah, there is a there's a section in the new Fielding Bible, Volume Four of the Fielding Bible. That, I mean, the you know much of the book is about shifting and who should be shifted and who shifts the most. And then there's this section that's like, why doesn't the shift do anything? <laughs> um, but it it kind of runs through that math of you know not every player is shifted and the players who are shifted don't get shifted 
uh, all the time and <laughs> they don't hit balls to the shift place in all the times that they're shifted and and so there is sort of ultimately you're left with this fairly small sample of of balls that are taken away because of the shift or that if uh even if one team could save 15 runs or something that that it in this one situation doesn't have that huge an impact on the whole league-wide numbers which is based on a much 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 huger number of balls in play and so it shows that you can that you can you know do the math and and that it should only be like a point or two of BABIP or something like that. So um, I guess the the answer is that there are a lot of balls in play. Even when everyone is striking out these days, there's there's still a lot of balls in play. And it takes a lot of change to make an appreciable difference in the overall numbers. Uh, okay, we got another moral question or ethical question i guess this is the baseball baseball ethicist edition of the podcast this one is from russell last week actually two weeks ago there was a question about whether a team who had discovered the secret to ending all elbow injuries had a moral obligation to inform and share with the other 29 teams let's turn that one on its head suppose that an independent researcher made the discovery The person could either publish the results in some appropriate journal, where everyone would find out about it, or could shop his or her knowledge to all 30 teams and take the highest bid. Could a researcher be ethically-slash-morally justified by taking the latter approach? Even better, let's assume that freedom from elbow injuries is worth X wins, let's say two wins per year to throw a number on it. Now let's suppose that the researcher found a foolproof, undetectable, uncopyable way for a team to clear two wins by adopting some weird strategic trick, would that person be morally justified in shipping his or her services to the highest bidder, or should that person simply post about it on their blog for all to see? So what do you think about the guys who catch a home run ball, and it's like the player's first home run, or uh-huh. I guess it, it's two separate things, but uh, it's either the player's first home run or it's you know, uh, the player's 500th home run. Uh, and then they're like, uh, the, the clubhouse uh, attendant or whatever goes out and goes, hey, I'll give you uh, two tickets to a spring training game for that baseball. Mm-hmm. And the guy's like, I think I'd like more than that. Yeah. And then everybody pillories that guy uh, if they find out about it. Or if the guy goes, yes, absolutely, you can have Barry Bonds' uh, 756th home run for – uh, two hot dogs. Uh, <laughs> everybody writes articles about uh, what a great guy that is. What do you think about that? Do you believe in in shaming the guy who catches the ball and then wants fair compensation for it? Not really. <laughs> I don't either. Okay I find those articles to be very distasteful. Uh-huh. In I I like the that guy. Do it. I mean, do it or don't. If you if you care to do it, then do it. And if you don't care to do it, you're not special. You but you can do that too. Mm-hmm. So anyway, that's uh, I guess that's a it's it's a similar situation, uh-huh. right? What about do, what about? Do, yeah, a guy has a thing that has value. Are we mad if he sells it to somebody with value? I mean, we've already established that elbow health uh, is not a societal good. Uh-huh. That uh, it is not uh, uh, juvenile diabetes or whatever. Mm-hmm. It's simply. A thing that has value, o- virtually, almost exclusively, and entirely within the fake world uh, of baseball, in which um, 
uh, winning uh, is its own value system, but has no actual apparent uh, value to the, to the world, right? Mm-hmm. So in that case, no, you the, you are not covered by there's, the hypocrisy. There's pain oh, and suffering. Uh, there's pain and suffering, but only within the context of being able to uh, or not being able to play in and win at a sport that is essentially a giant illusion. Right. Uh-huh. Uh, so you're not, uh, I mean, when it does, when the pain and suffering goes into non-athletic territory, like head injury, Uh I mean, that's, that's a totally different thing. Uh, but here's my way of thinking about it. If your injury would, uh, not require a non-athlete to treat it, then it's not a real injury. It's only a sports injury. Uh-huh. If I, if I, if my tendon snapped right now, they, they wouldn't fix it. Mm-hmm. It would hurt for a week. Uh, I think my understanding is it would hurt for a week and then it would go away. Even if it hurt forever, I'm not sure they would fix it. Like they would just look at me and say, well, what do you, I mean, you're that. Yeah. Life, life is pain. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> <laughs> but, like I don't know that I don't know that my insurance would cover a torn labrum, uh, and so that's not to me that is not a societal good to mm-hmm. to prevent. It is only a baseball good, and if it is only a baseball good, then you are a uh, a rational economic actor uh, in this uh, in this economy, uh, and you can do whatever you want. Um, and I and I would say you should. I would say that you would sell it to the highest bidder. I like the character of the fatalistic surgeon, who just when you when you consult with him, he just just says, "Yeah, yeah, right. that's, that's oh, too well, bad." If, yeah, imagine if that was your dentist. If you went into your dentist, you're like, oh, my teeth really hurt, and he's like, "Yeah, well, it's gonna hurt worse when you die." Um, how do you feel about the foul ball shaming? I mean, there are there uh, are I've, there are certain, there are certainly times when it's particularly egregious. I mean. You know when you when you snatch the ball away from a couple of kids who are trying to catch it, also that sort of thing. Not talking about that, but like you have never caught a foul ball, and you would be super excited if you caught a foul ball. So what if you were at a ballpark and you caught a foul ball, and you were not with your family, but some other person's family was nearby, and a kid was making sad puppy eyes, and you were crowing about your foul ball and not handing it over? Is that a shame-worthy scenario? I I'm gonna I wrote about this uh, very early on in my BP tenure. Mm. I'm going to send you the link so you can uh, <laughs> okay. refer to it if you want to. Okay. Uh, but uh, my philosophy on this, uh, as I explained it, is that as a grown-up, there are some ways of acquiring a baseball that are extremely uh, important and memorable to you. So if you catch a home run, for instance. That's awesome. And you will get, on a scale of 1 to 10, you will get a 10 of joy. And uh, on the flip side, uh, if a foul ball uh, hits off somebody's hand, bounces off a chair, rolls down the aisle, and hits your foot, and you pick it up, Mm -hmm. you've done nothing. You are smart enough as an adult to know that you have done nothing uh, impressive and that that is simply... A baseball, like a generic base. I'm sure, a major league baseball game used baseball, but you did not. You did not catch that ball, uh-huh. and so for that, you might get a three. And if a ball, um, if the first baseman's running off the field and tosses the ball to you, uh, and 
even if you catch it from four feet away, you're not going to like uh, hold it up and say, look at me, I'm an honorary jock. That's like a one. That's just, again, just a baseball. So, uh, as I then further explain though, to a kid, all of them are nines. Every <laughs> single one is a nine. It's, they're only not a 10 because kids have short attention spans uh-huh. and kids are incapable of feeling a 10. <laughs> like they don't know that a 10 exists. Uh-huh. Uh, that's why we don't let them get married uh, or drink alcohol uh, because they can't, they can't appreciate the joy of a 10 yet, but they're all nine. That's the only reason why we don't let them drink. The, they won't exactly. they won't fully enjoy it they won't appreciate it right they don't they don't know <laughs> right they you think those you think those kids are getting imperial stouts no they're probably not even on untapped <laughs> they don't know how to do it so anyway uh so those kids in fact not only so all of these situations are nine and in fact it's so far that even handing a kid a baseball that you caught or picked up or had someone toss to you is a nine to the kid. Mm-hmm. Kids are just a constant nine. They're a nine or a two. Everything in life is a nine or a two, and you're providing them a nine at almost no expense to you. So that's a long way of saying that if you catch a home run, you keep it. No obligation whatsoever to give up a home run that you catch. If you catch a foul ball, you get to keep it if it's your first one. Uh-huh. If, if it's more than your first one, if you have more than one, it's your discretion. I probably lean toward not keeping it but i understand if you've caught a ball that's pretty impressive particularly if you've caught it barehanded by the way Mm -hmm. Uh, if it's a home run you pick up depends on whether it's the home team depends on whether it's your uh, a decent player um i lean toward give it away uh i think i would give it away but i understand a home run is a little bit different i wouldn't shame a person who picked up a home run and kept it every other situation you give it away immediately Uh uh-huh okay those are good rules to live by. I will post this link in the Facebook group if anyone wants to see the full accounting. All right. Uh, that's that's all. I gotta go. I gotta go to the airport. Okay, so we are done. <coughs> you can join our Facebook group at facebook.com/groups/effectivelywild. Rate and review and subscribe to the show on iTunes. Sam is objecting to this inside as I say it. And you can support our sponsor. <laughs> The Play Index by going to baseballreference.com, subscribing to the Play Index using the coupon code BP, and getting a discounted price of $30 on a one-year subscription.